Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. Some of you as part of our church family sharing in the answer to these questions that help us kind of get a handle on, on, on the day. Really some good thoughts about how we show love to someone. And it's an important question because all too often, love can kind of degenerate down into simplistic statements. But, but love is so much more than just words. And the Apostle John wants his readers, he wants us to get this message from Jesus himself. And so this morning, we're, gonna, we're just going to go ahead and dive right on into uh, 1 John chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to that. If not, we have an insert in your bulletin that you can pull out that has uh, the scriptures and places for notes and filling in the blanks uh, of some of the thoughts here. Um, we're going to just we're going to walk through some of this in First John, beginning in chapter three, verse eleven, picking up where we left off last week, talking about children of God. Uh, John writes, "For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another." And when John talks about the message that you have heard from the beginning, he means the message they'd heard from when they began to follow Jesus Christ, when Christ came into their lives and began to impact and affect them. And that message, John tells us, that message that they have heard is that we should love one another. It's interesting, John says that five times in this letter. He says that one time in addition in his next letter, Second John, which is a very short writing, but also, when you look at the Gospel of John that he wrote earlier, he, he has Jesus saying this at least five different times, these, these very words, love one another. It's very important. John understands that this is at the core of what it looks like to follow Jesus. N- not only loving God, as he talks about in the Great Commandment, but also loving our neighbor. And it's important to realize that right belief the believing the right things is meant to lead us to living right, right life, right actions in our lives, how we, how we treat each other. Jesus didn't come just to tell us some important stuff so that we would have a lot of information, so we could quote him and say, isn't it amazing what we know? He came to, to help us connect to God in such a profound relationship that it changes our lives. It changes us, but not just so that I am different, but so that God can then use me to be a part of him changing other lives as well. It's all about love. Jesus himself said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one another. And notice that Jesus here says it's a commandment. He doesn't say, here's a suggestion for you. Here's something you ought to do if you want your life to be better. Here is a thought for the day. Jesus says a commandment, a command, something he can tell us to do. And that may not sound right if what you're thinking about uh, uh, love is romance, the, the warm, gushy feelings, which are fine. There's nothing wrong with those. Those are wonderful, but it's not the kind of love that can be constant, that, can, that we can live through and live out every day of our lives. 
Jesus is talking about a love that chooses to accept someone for who they are and sacrificially works for their good. It's a choice. It's a choosing. It's not just left up to when I feel like it. It's a choice, which is why he can command it, why he can tell us to love. Because if it's left up to my feelings, nobody can make me feel some particular way. That's, a, that's something I have to experience myself. But when he gives us a command of something I can choose to do, then yes, I can do that. We can love when we don't feel like it. And he says that when we do love, that's the clearest sign that we are following him as his disciples versus following the devil. That love is the mark of the Christ follower. He says in verse 12, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, if you don't know the story, Cain and Abel were the first two sons born to Adam and Eve. And we read about their story in Genesis chapter 4. Very early in, in Genesis chapter 3, we find sin entering in the picture. And then you jump to the next, very next chapter and we have the story of Cain and Abel. And in it, we learn Cain is jealous of Abel and kills him. And John says this spirit of jealousy arose because Cain was influenced by the evil one. And John says this same spirit is in our world today, in our world seeking and, and expressing itself as hate toward Christians. In fact, he says in verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. I mean, Maybe not all of us have had the experience, but I bet a lot of us have, where you try to do the right thing. You're trying to make, live with integrity, make ethical, moral choices. And there are people at your school or, or people at your work or even people in your family who make fun of you, who dismiss you, who put you down. What is that Christian stuff, you know? That's just for goody-goodies or something like that. You know, we've probably heard the old expression, old story, you know, what, what happens when you, you put a bunch of crabs in a bucket? The, some of them start to try to climb out because it's not a place where they want to be. What happens though, the problem is other crabs reach down and pull back the ones that are trying to get out. They, they, they don't want somebody to, to make themselves better. They don't want them to find something better in their life. And so if they're not willing to rise up themselves, then they choose to pull everybody back down to their level. And this happens so often in our lives where there are, there are people around us, and they may not use the language, but, but they don't want you doing the right things. They don't want you living with integrity because then it, it, it casts a light on their life. And, and, and there's like a sense of guilt or maybe even shame in that. And so they feel more comfortable bringing you down to their level rather than elevating themselves up to the level God is calling us to. John says those who, who love show that they're already members of Christ's family, beginning to experience eternal life now, this transformation. And yet living this godly kind of love doesn't gain us entry into eternal life like I do these things so that God will do this. Instead, he says they are a sign of a person's commitment to Christ. They are the result. They're how we reflect Christ in our lives. He goes on to say, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We love those around us. Conversely, he says, those who don't love are in trouble. He says, whoever does not love abides in death. 
Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And, and John then, really in saying that, kind of draws us back to what Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the great teachings of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus said, you have heard that it was said of, to those of old, you shall not murder, which is one of the Ten Commandments, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. In other words, God judges us not just on our outer actions, but also on our inner motives. When we hate, we have taken first steps toward Destruction of another. And even if we never pull the trigger, even if we never do anything, that hatred, that anger that that we nurse, that bitterness within us can destroy our soul, can can sap everything good out of us so that we, we may not take the final step, but we've already gone too far. We are living really to some degree in a hell here on earth. And I suspect maybe all or almost all of us have experienced that and understand that really kind of intuitively. Cain shows us what happens when we allow those things to take root in us, but, but Jesus shows us instead what happens when we allow love to take root. He tells us in verse 16, by this we know love, that he, talking about Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. When, when Christ is in my life, John says, then I am, his sacrificial love for me, what he did for me on the cross when I did not deserve it, I had not earned it, what he did for me in laying down his life for me leads me then to be willing to sacrifice for the sake of others. And and while you and I may not have to make the decision to sacrifice our physical life for those of us living here in America today, we know that decision is occurring in certain parts of the world around us today. And yet, every one of us has opportunities to sacrifice for the sake of others every day. To do things for the sake of others. To do things that other people are going to kind of sneer at you or make fun of you or say you shouldn't be doing that or why would you do that? It's ultimately not even about fairness. I mean, sometimes we, we say, well, it, it ought to be fair, you know? But if you look through God's word, what you discover is there is no promise written in here that a life is going to be fair. We want it. It would be great. It would be wonderful. As long as God weren't just fair with us because we all fall short of the glory of God. But that promise is not there. And so... We, we have to realize that as we go through life, there, there's a great danger of wanting everybody else to do right by us when we don't necessarily do right by everyone around us. And, and God has been more than fair with us in sending Jesus to take our punishment for our sins so we can be forgiven. The Apostle Paul said, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, 
Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. That's what God did for us. He gave his life that you and I might have life and have it abundantly. He sacrificed for us. And John tells us we must do the same for others if we're following him. This morning, our, our, our worship arts team gathers at, at 7.30 every Sunday morning to prepare, to pray, and to practice and do all the things to get ready for these services. And, and not only do we pray, but this morning they, there was a devotional by Brandon Marshall, one of our uh, worship arts folk, and he was talking about some of this and talking about where Jesus came and, and served his disciples by washing their feet. And Jesus is the Son of God. He was with God. He created all of creation. I mean, we are beholding to him, and what did he do? He came and knelt at the feet of his disciples, of people like you and me, and he washed our feet because he loves us. And he says we are to live in much that same way. We give up our divine privileges or our human privileges to care and love one another. John says in verse 17, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, love is, is a choice, a choice that Jesus made, a choice that on that last night he sat down to wash the feet of his disciples, a choice that we make day in and day out. It's an action. It's not simply a wish for something better for someone else. Well, I, I hope things go better for you, and that's all I'm going to do. That's a nice sentiment, but it's not expressing genuine love. Love that doesn't act is nothing more than words, empty words at that. What's interesting here is that John has gone from talking about brothers in the plural in verse 16 to brother in the, in the, the singular in verse 17, from plural in 16 to singular in 17. I got this from uh, David Mayhew, who is helping lead one of our, our Wednesday night Bible study going through this. And it's, it, it, it's believed that John did this because it's easy to talk in general generalities about loving others, about helping others, uh, of loving groups of people, but it's a lot harder to talk in specifics of loving a person, an individual who has particular needs, whom we may or may not know, whom we may or may not even like. C.S. Lewis said, loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. And when I read that, I just thought, wow, that, that, for at least for me, that really jumps out. That love is something we do. It's an action. It's lived out in concrete examples in individuals' lives. Because how do you love a big group? It's hard to figure that out sometimes. But how do you love the person? If you know them, you can see all kinds of ways to do that. 
And yet John realizes that many followers of Jesus are going to struggle at times to feel assurance that their their loving of others, their obedience to God's word is right because they're dealing with individuals around them who call their their beliefs into question, who, who ridicule their loving actions and practices. And Christ followers need to know that they are on God's side, on the side of his truth. So John says by this, talking about love and obedience that we show, he says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive for him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, maybe that jumped out at you, maybe it didn't, but I think that passage has huge implications for us today. John understands how much emotion and feelings play a role in your life and mine. Some of us, a great deal. Some of us, not as much. Uh, But for many of us, emotions can govern what we believe about ourselves and, and how we live our lives and what we choose to do in the next few minutes. And sure, there are times when we rightly sense conviction. This recognition that I have sinned, I have fallen short of God's glory, his will, and his desires for my life. And that conviction which comes through the Holy Spirit, God's presence in us, can call us to repentance and back to to right thinking and living. But there are other times, and I bet most if not all of us have experienced this, when Satan, the accuser, the deceiver, the liar... When, when Satan subtly and unjustly accuses and condemns our spirit, confusing our heart, we're, we're left questioning ourselves and feeling insecure in our understanding of our relationship with God. And John wants to combat this, that, that sometimes we're, we're striving to do the right thing or we think we're doing the right thing and we, what we want to do the right thing, and yet we get this feeling that, that we're messing up or we could never be good enough or why would, why would God care about me stepping in and helping in that area or me giving this or me being a part of that. There, there's so much of this condemnation that Satan loves to do to, to inflict upon us, to confuse us. He doesn't want you or me truly loving those around us. He doesn't want you and me obeying God's word, God's truth. It's worth realizing that the Holy Spirit sends conviction when our actions and our attitudes don't honor God. But when Satan wants us to feel condemnation, he attacks our being. He says to us we're no good. He reminds us that that we, we don't ever measure up, that surely those people or your friends or your family members don't really truly love you. That, that you, you really have to do better. You have to work harder. You have to measure up somehow in order to gain acceptance. You've gotta keep moving up the ladder and no matter how hard you try, it seems like there's always something that catches us that, 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 that causes us to stumble. You see, conviction challenges what we do, our actions, and even our attitudes, how we think about things, But condemnation attacks us, our being, who we are at our core, and says that God could never really love you. Surely he would never forgive you. He might forgive some people, but because of what you've done, because of who you are, because of how bad you are. And I'm not saying that's a thought that runs always through our mind, but I suspect for many of us, 
there are times when that thought hits us pretty hard. When that thought comes in, when we're feeling a little bit insecure, it says, why would God care about me? Why would what I do, how could it ever matter? And in those moments, we are giving in to his condemnation. So John reminds us that our assurance is not anchored in what we feel, in, 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 in all that goes with that. It's anchored in God and no one else, in what God says, in his truth. John says God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything about us. Yes, he knows about our sins, but he also knows if we have committed our life to Christ. He also knows if it is our intention to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, if that's our desire. And so when we do fall short, when we do fail, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. The, the, the writer Paul said that to the Romans, regardless of how we feel in the moment. So when we, we keep God's truth about us at the forefront of our minds, that I am loved by him, that in committing my life to him, I am a child of God, that he loves me and he has set aside heaven for me, regardless of what I may be feeling, I can discover a real confidence before God, John says. That's a decision, that's a choice, that's something we have to work on against our feelings. And if you have committed your life to Christ, then you can claim confidence, not always because you and I feel it, but because God's word says you are his child. He does love you. Jesus Christ did die on the cross for your sins, even yours. Though we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you can rejoice in that. You can take comfort in that. You don't have to beat yourself up because of how things have gone, of even because of your failures. Because that is not how you are defined in the eyes of God. That's the way Satan wants you to find yourself. That's what he wants you to think. That's what he wants you and me to latch on to. And we, we often do. It's easy to do, but there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and so we can stand on God's word when our feelings are working against us, and this is why the Christian community is so important and so valuable, because sharing our feelings and concerns with those close to us who, who also trust in Christ, who we can trust in their relationship, can help us discern when we are hearing lies from the devil and giving in to them, giving in to that condemnation to talk about that, to share with one another. We can be grateful when our, our feelings do align with God's truth. But feelings are too fickle for us to make them the judge of our faithfulness before God. Instead, John reminds us again that our confidence can rest in our attitudes and actions of choosing to love. Our willingness to obey God is the evidence that we are seeking to trust him regardless of how we feel in the moment. And John says, verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, in God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. John wants to remind us that we have this confidence before God that comes as we live in this close, intimate 
relationship with him, when we are, in fact, as he says over and over again, abiding in him. And we experience this abiding through God's spirit who comes to live in all Christ followers when we welcome Christ into our lives. But John knows that there are other spirits at work in the world around us today who don't love us, who don't want us to love, who don't want us to seek God's good and instead want us to experience the oppression and the, and the, the condemnation of the, of the devil. And so he offers, John offers his readers and us a couple of tests to affirm that we are hearing God's spirit versus some other spirit. We'll see more of those in just a couple of verses, but John says this, turning to chapter four, verse one. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. That's what John was dealing with. False teachers who had left his churches continued to have influence with many of the people in his churches, and some of those teachings were creating troubling feelings. These teachers who had left, they thought they were spiritually superior. They thought, we have a special revelation from God. We know things you don't know, and therefore we are better than you. And, and because you're not up to us, we're going to go elsewhere. Well, you can imagine those who left behind, who maybe even at some point had looked up to those folks, they start feeling pretty bad. They start feeling like they're not worth very much, that they're spiritually inferior. And it led to reasons that John's readers were struggling with their feelings in the midst of all this. John tells his readers, he tells us, that we must test the spirits to see whether they are from God because of these false teachers. In verse 6, uh, John will label the two spirits at work as the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, which is the same as the spirit of the Antichrist. The Apostle Paul tells us that there are that some, some Christ followers will have the gift of discernment to be able to discern that spirit, that spirit of the Antichrist. But for many of us, probably most of us, we don't have that spirit, and we may not always be able to discern that, so we need some ways to test the spirits. These false prophets claiming to speak for God, John says, what they are saying is not true, and he offers us a couple of tests to discern the true spirit from God. In verse two, he says, by this you know the spirit of God. In other words, here's how you know. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already and is still in the world. In other words, the true spirit of God confesses the truth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. What he is telling us here is that, that we need right or correct thinking about Jesus, uh, what, what is called Christology, the, the, the study of who Jesus is. It is critical. The Spirit of God is always going to glorify the Son of God. The Spirit of God is never going to, to dis, dismiss or, dis, or teach something different than what Jesus said and what is evidenced in Scripture. So John is telling us the spirit of truth affirms that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, a man, is in fact also the divine word of God who, as John wrote in his gospel, was in the beginning with God. He is fully divine. He is fully man. He's not 50-50. He's not 40-60 or 30-70. He is 100-100, which mathematically, I know, it doesn't work. That's why sometimes you can't reason through this. You look at what Scripture reveals. 
And this is the revelation of God in Scripture. Jesus was fully man, fully God. And he is the source of eternal life because he alone reveals God the Father to us. And he alone served as the atonement for our sins on the cross. So this correct thinking about Jesus, again, what, what's sometimes called Christology, it's been something important to John throughout his letter because if Jesus wasn't fully human, if, he, if he, there wasn't humanity to him, then his death wouldn't mean anything to us because we can't relate to him. He's not like us. He can't take our place. At the same time, if he's not fully divine, then his death is just one more death, one more sacrifice among all the sacrifices that have been offered over, over the centuries in the temple. One more sacrifice rather than the full, perfect, complete sacrifice because of the divinity of Jesus, the, the Son of God, offered once for all, for all time. His divinity assures us that we are truly seeing who God the Father is. Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. But John is after more than knowledge here. Because the Bible tells us even the demons realize Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but they don't obey him, nor do they love him or love as he does in the world. They do not make him, they do not make God their, their Lord, they make Satan their Lord. And John says we must affirm and claim that Jesus is fully God and fully man and that this unique revelation of God de de demands not just that we know this, not just knowledge, but that in fact it demands our obedience and our worship. If the God who created you, who created everything there is, is also the God that died for you on the cross, who gave you life that you could not find, you could not earn in any other way, then if he tells you, I made you, I understand you better than you know yourself, and here's how you are to live your life, doesn't it make sense that he understands, he knows, and that it, it's wise for us to trust him and follow him? But that's not what Satan wants. And, and Satan would rather us be ambivalent about Jesus. Well, he's a good man. Oh, he was a great teacher, you know? And, and we, we put him up there with the, the other great teachers from other religions, and, and they're, all, they're all good, and they're all saying the same kinds of things over and over again. Let me tell you something. John says that if we are saying that, in effect, the spirit of the Antichrist is at work in that thought. The spirit of the Antichrist, because we're making Jesus just another man, a good man, a wise man, but still just a man. C.S. Lewis, in writing about this in the last century, said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said, like, I am the Son of God, I am the way, the truth, and the life, so on and so forth, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. 
You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. So let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, if Jesus is who he says he is, who he claims to be, then his very being demands our full trust and commitment. He is Lord. He is Savior. He is creator of all. And if he's not, he's a liar. At best, nuts at worst. How can that be a good person to follow? How can we say good things about that? So it's a faith, it's a faith decision. It really is. Do you believe? But if you believe, there are implications of that. He then is not only our Savior, he is also our Lord our master, our king? Do we follow him? Do we trust him? And that's not what the world is saying. But John then gives a second test. Verse 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. In other words, the second test of discerning the true spirit from God really is the historic confession and acceptance of teachings by the church down through the centuries. And when I put that up there, notice I capitalized church with a capital C, not a little c, because we're not talking about a local congregation, gateway church or this Presbyterian church or that non-denominational church or whatever it may be. We're not talking about a particular denomination. We are talking about the body of Christ down through the centuries that has held to and practiced Christian beliefs, what right beliefs, what we call orthodoxy, right beliefs grounded always in God's word. The church, the Bible tells us, was created by Jesus Christ, empowered by his spirit at Pentecost, and though the human institution of the church has certainly had its share of flaws and failings. I mean, I don't have to tell you that. Many of you in here have been hurt in a church at some time or another. Probably all of us have because there are human beings and we do fall short of the glory of God and we're not perfect at this point in our journey. But in the midst of that, there is, can be discerned an historic faith revealed in Scripture, affirmed by the faithful down through the centuries that confirms and affirms God's truth. They keep saying, this is true. This makes a difference. We are not in a position to simply say, hey, well, some spirit has revealed something new to me today that's different from what we've always known. We can't say that, you know, some teacher out there is saying, well, it used to be this way, but now God means this. We can't say that somebody has had a great new revelation because of psychology or science. And therefore, we need to kind of just pat Christianity on the head and say, that was nice, but you don't understand. Either it's true or it's not. I mean, and again, that's a faith statement. I understand that. But if it is true, it's of ultimate importance. 
The Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's not coming up with new things. And so what he teaches through his word is not just timely. It is timeless. Jesus didn't say he was the way, the truth, and the life once upon a time. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the church over the past 2,000 years stands in a position to, to affirm these truths over and over uh, and against any new ideas, not just in the 21st century, but new ideas in the 5th century, and in the 10th century, in the 12th century, in the 16th century, in the 21st century, in the 23rd century, in the 25th century, whenever it may be. There is nothing the spirit of error, the spirit of the Antichrist, who, who, who is listened to by the world, there's nothing it would love more than to get the church to go along with false teaching. And we see churches that do that. And at some point, we'd have to honestly say they're not even a church anymore. John is telling us that we do not have the privilege or the luxury to pick and choose or introduce new things simply because the world around us affirms it. John says whoever is not from God does not listen to us. They don't see it. And so this is how we can begin to discern what is true versus what is trendy or convenient or preferred. It's easier for me to do it this way. I, 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 like, I, I like how it makes me feel. Okay, but is that right? I can get high on a drug, and I may feel fine for a while, but is it right, is it best, is it good for the long haul? You see, and that's the danger when we focus in on what we're feeling in the moment or what somebody with great passion says that doesn't line up with God's word. So we can trust that God will prevail. That as the Bible tells us, he will, so will we if we remain faithful to him, even in the midst of false teachings and even hatred from the world around us. And yet, even as we guard against these, God, John wants to continue to remind us that because Christ lives in us, how we disagree, how we, in fact, love those who see it differently, who talk about it differently, who, in fact, who may demean us and put us down, how we love the world really does matter. In fact, the world does not expect love, much less love in response to its hatred. And so that Response of love is precisely what changes people. If, if somebody is, is dismissing your beliefs and they are belittling you, you're going to rightly feel anger. But do you answer fire with fire? Get angry back, get mad, start fighting back with them. What do you do? You're just escalating the conflict. Jesus told us, John reiterates, we love one another. Because love is not what the world expects. Love doesn't always even make sense to the world. And so when you and I love, we challenge what they believe. We challenge the ideologies that they have built their lives on. The ideologies that Jesus says are shifting sand. That do fine when there are no storms. But when the storms of life come, when the winds blow, the house 
will collapse. We choose to build our houses on the rock of Jesus Christ. We choose when we're stuck in that bucket with the other crabs, instead of pulling the others down with us, we choose to help some of them out. Because that's how we love one another. Now, I guarantee you, when you and I respond that way, even if people are harsh and hateful in that moment, it's going to stick with them. And the Holy Spirit will use that and begin to find the chinks in their armor for a belief that they have bought into that they've never thought through and they've never grounded in something that is eternal. In Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our actions speak louder than our words. If we speak God's truth, but we live down to Satan's desires, the world will ignore us. It will dismiss us. So we do what the old song says. They will know we are Christians by our love. By our love. Yes, they will know that we are Christians by our love. If that's a challenge for you this morning, our prayer team is going to be down here, and they'd love to talk with you. If, if you have battled feelings of condemnation and you've had your life committed to Christ, they would love to talk with you and give you God's assurance to pray over you. We are in this together. Our enemy is not those around us. It's the evil one who loves to plant lies in your mind and mine. And so we need each other, and we need the prayer and support of one another in a community, as Brandon talked about. So I hope you'll consider that. If you want to dig more into it, we have a study guide on our Find It page. Many of our small groups are using that. You can be, use it in your group, or you can use it individually. Uh, in just a moment, I will be out here in the lobby with some, some of our other friends that would love to say hello to you if you're new here this morning. But here's what I want to do. I want to close this out with an affirmation. 1 Corinthians 13, often called the love chapter, and is a great passage about love in action. But if you read it carefully, I mean, as soon as you say love is patient, if you're honest, you, most of us would have to admit, yet I struggle with patience. That what we read here is not something that we can do on our own. In fact, we need the Holy Spirit living in us to enable us to be patient, to be kind, to not keep track of the wrongs. This is only possible by the Spirit of God at work in us. But it is a, 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 a concrete way to talk about how we can love one another. And so I want us to read it out loud together. And, 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 but to make it concrete, we, here it is. I put some blanks where the word love or the pronoun it was. And instead of saying love or it, I want you to say your name. So like I would say Randy is patient and kind because that makes it personal. Remember what we said when it's about everybody, it's about nobody. It's about us. And so I want you to stand and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to use my mic because I don't want you all saying Randy. 
That's what happened. A couple people told me in the first service. They said, I, we doubly blessed you because we said Randy is patient. No, I want you to say your name. Out loud if you feel comfortable, if not, to yourself. But let's read this together. And as scripture says, love never fails. That's the promise and the good news for you and me today. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you do love us in spite of ourselves, in spite of what the world tells us, in spite of sometimes what our own thoughts and feelings accuse us. You love us. And you have given us ways to combat the enemy. And, and you have told us that we need to love one another as a way of living that out, of making it concrete, not only for ourselves, but for the sake of the world. Help us, Father, to love, to love one another, to love individuals and not just dismiss it because it's hard to love a group. Help us to look for ways to be loving to those we encounter today, tomorrow, in, at work, in, in school, in our homes. Help us to be different, Father, because of you. In fact, to be so different that the world will notice, the world will question, the world will, in some cases, attack, but the world will not be able to dismiss us. Help us to love so that your world may be transformed by your love for the sake of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Love one another. See you next week. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.